Hi, and thanks for tuning in to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week, we feature an interesting, thought-provoking and clinically relevant conversation to enhance your speech pathology practice. Let's hear from this week's contributors. Hi, and welcome to Speak Up. This is Nadia, and today I'm joined with Kelly Williams, the other ethics advisor here at Speech Pathology Australia. Hi, Kelly. Hi, Nadia. We are recording today from the lands of the Wurundjeri Woi Wurrung and Boonarong Boon Wurrung peoples of the Eastern Kulin Nation. Now, Kelly and I, uh, this last weekend, we spent it with the Ethics Board. We've just wrapped on the Ethics Board training weekend of 2023, which is where all of the members of the Ethics Board come together and we make sure that everyone is feeling supported and try and update all of our policies and procedures. And while we were doing that, we actually took the time to have a conversation with our community representatives who are on the Ethics Board. Um, And that's going to be the second half of our interview today. So, Kelly, we're going to start out a little bit by talking about some of the things, just to give people some context about who's on the ethics board and and why we have all of these. Um, But let's start by talking a little bit about why we have an ethics board and a complaint process. So, Speech Pathology Australia has a complaints process for a couple of different reasons, really. Um, One of them is that in Australia, speech pathology is a self-regulating profession. So, um, Speech Pathology Australia joined an organisation called NASRAP, which is the National Alliance of Self-Regulating Allied Health Professionals. And one of the requirements for joining NASRAP was that there was a very clear pathway for us to be able to uphold the standards that we set. So those are things like professional standards, um, even practice guidelines and the code of ethics as well. So it is a requirement of NASRAP that we have a complaints process. um, And it's also a tool for us to be able to enforce the standards that that we set as well. Um, It sounds like something that's pretty overwhelming and concerning. It, it's really, it shouldn't be. Um, it really is just about ensuring that we have the ability to make sure that if something has been alleged about a speech pathologist, that there is a way to ensure that we can investigate it, come to an, an understanding of what happened within that situation. And if there are concerns about safety of the client or um, the reputation of the profession, that we have a pathway to be able to mitigate that if we if we need to. Um, Kelly, can you tell us a little bit about who is on the ethics board? Yeah, sure. So um, the head of the ethics board, if you like, is the chair, and then it's made up of five senior members, five elected members that are elected by SPA members and five community representatives Um, and as we explained at the start today's conversation is just going to be with the community representatives on that board so when a formal complaint is submitted to SPA um, an investigation panel or an IP as you'll hear it referred to today in our conversation from the ethics board is arranged and that IP or investigative panel is made up of one community representative, one elected member 
and one senior member who leads the panel. Um, so they get together and they have a conversation about the information that's been submitted and they will have a look to see if there has been a breach of the code of ethics. Um, and I just want to mention as well that having a community representative um, on our board is, is quite unique and I think it's, it makes our board um, special in that it it puts um, client welfare at the front and it means that we are you know thinking person-centered all throughout this process um, and also to, just to mention as well that the ethics board are acting on behalf of the board of directors so they sit sit separately um, but they are a part of of looking at the standards for our profession on behalf of the board of directors. Um, Nadia, do you want to talk a little bit more about what the process looks like um, of maybe from the start of when someone might have concerns um, through to how it might become a formal complaint? I will just add that when we are talking about an investigative panel or an IP, um, the community representative is the only person that's not a speech pathologist. So we have the elected member and the senior member, they're both speeches. And then the community rep, as you said, Kelly, is somebody who is um, a little bit more independent of all of those things and is sort of the the consumer voice and also represents um, the public generally as well. Thanks for um, that, Nadia. Yeah, sure. Um, so the process itself, it starts out with a conversation with an ethics advisor who are you and I, Kelly, um, and if a complaint does come in, one thing that is useful to know is that it's treated confidentially. So that will only stay within the ethics team here at SPA and then the relevant people on the ethics board as well. So it's not something that is going to be um, known to the general population. It's not something that's going to be known to your peers as well. And, um, and other national staff members as well, I might add yeah. as well. So they don't know any of the discussions no. that we have within the ethics team. Exactly. Um, the purpose of a complaints process here at SPA is educative um, with the intent being to support people to make choices that are um, more in line with the code and more in line with the standards that we hold as well, not to be punitive. So if you're in the same position again, that the same thing doesn't happen is the intent behind it. Um, when a complaint is submitted, the first step is that it goes to the chair of the ethics board. They'll look over the information that they have been given um, and ensure that there isn't any malicious or vexatious intent behind any of that. Um, and sometimes it's useful to, to know as well that the information that has been submitted, they want to be see if there's a, a, a good question, a reasonable question that is being asked here. Um, and if it's in the best interest of the public that this is investigated. It doesn't mean that somebody has done anything wrong at all. That's not it's not what happens here. Um, we only have a handful of complaints every year. It really is something that nobody should be losing sleep over. Um, it works out to be less than 1% of the membership. So it really isn't something that happens very commonly. It, it really is a very small um, proportion of the membership that we do have complaints about as well. So really to summarise what the complaints process looks like, um, like I said, it's originally initially a conversation with the ethics team at Speech Pathology Australia. Um, we try and resolve things informally wherever we possibly can. If it does escalate to a formal complaint, it goes to the chair of the ethics board as that first sort of stopgap. Um, if there is a concern that has been raised there or if the question being asked is something that it's within the 
public safety or public best interest for us to investigate. Um, the chair of the ethics board will instruct a an investigative panel to assemble. Um, and like we said, that is the senior member and elected member, both of whom are speech pathologists, and then the community representative who we'll hear from in just a moment as well. Um, and then they look at all the information that is provided by the the person who has initiated the complaint, the speech pathologist in question as well gets to respond to all of that. And then they compare it to our code of ethics and just say, okay, um, looking at this, do we have concerns about this conduct? And if we do, what are we going to be able to do to ensure that if this person is put in a similar situation again, that different decisions are made and that they are decisions that are made in alignment with um, the code of ethics and the professional standards, for example. Um, if people want to know more about that, I will link in the show notes a copy of the What Do I Do If a Complaint Is Made Against Me FAQ as well. So that information should be there too. Kelly, do you want to talk a little bit about some of the main themes in complaints? Obviously, we can't give any details about any of these things, but um, just some of the, the higher order themes that happen within all of com the complaints that we do receive. Yeah, so um, a very common or main theme that we find within formal complaints is all about respectful and responsive communication. So it's really about making sure that you've tailored that situation um, to the person in front of you and that you've been responsive to their needs. Um, another theme is professionalism. So that can encompass a wide variety of things, for for example, conduct, professionalism, integrity, professional responsibilities, um, things around that kind of nature. Um, and another really big one is documentation. So making sure that you've written all of your clinical notes and that they're completed in a timely fashion um, and, you know, any other documentation that you might need to complete, like um, reports, um, making sure that they're there for every session um, and that you're sending the right information to the right person as well, um, adhering to, you know, confidentiality. Um, so, yeah, so that's a kind of quick overview of the main themes that we see within formal complaints. And if anyone is worried about any of these sorts of things, you're welcome to reach out to Kelly and myself. We'll have a conversation um, and just see if there's any supports that we can offer as well. All of our contact details and the things that we reference in the second half of this interview will be in the show notes so that you can really easily access it. Um, one thing that I thought it was also worth mentioning here as well, Kelly, is just the idea that it is actually written into our code of ethics, that if we see behaviour that we believe breaches the code of ethics, we ourselves have an ethical responsibility to report that. Um, it's not some, it's not dobbing or anything like that. It, it's a responsibility to ensure that if there are concerns that we wrap supports around that person and make sure that they are in a position of being able to lower some of those boundaries to making choices that are um, in line with the code and in line with the standards as well. Yeah, thanks for that, Nadia. Yeah, it's that's written into our code of ethics. So that may be a conversation that we have if someone reaches out and says, hey, I've got complaints about um, or concerns, sorry, about this person, then we may have a conversation about, okay, now you are aware of that information, um, you may need to act uh, upon that. Um, and at the forefront of that is, again, coming back to client safety. Um, so making sure that 
um, a person is practicing safely and not putting anybody at harm. Before we get to the second part of this um, podcast today, which is the interview with the community representatives, um, one question that we do receive quite a lot if there are um, possibilities of a complaint going ahead is whether Speech Pathology Australia takes away somebody's ability to practice as a speech pathologist. Kelly, do you want to talk a little bit to that? Yeah, so as Nadia has already explained, the, the, the system is set up to um, to not be punitive. And by that, SPA cannot give any financial directives or tell members what they need to do um, in terms of that. Um, and typical or recommendations from the ethics board are around um, supports to yourself. So that might look like some professional development in a certain area, a reflective um, practice or piece of writing to show that you've got some insight into what happened um, and what you would do differently next time. The recommendations from the board, so they are supportive rather than um, taking away someone's uh, license or ability to to practice, unless there's been a, a very something extremely extremely serious, which uh, thankfully we we don't. Um, tend to see very often. Yeah. All right. Brilliant. Thank you for that, Kelly. Okay. Let's move into our second part of the interview. We are now joined by four of the community representatives on the ethics board. Um, Donna, I might hand to you to start with, if that's all right. Can you tell us a little bit about why you decided to nominate for the Speech Pathology Australia ethics board as a community rep? So firstly, my name's Donna Dancer and I've been on the Ethics Board for eight and a half years now. I originally uh, nominated myself to be on the board as a community representative because I I felt that I could give input as a parent of a child that had a, a specific language disorder and who had access speech pathology from a very, very early age. Um, that child is now 36 and part of the NDIS um, environment and we still access speech pathology. So I felt that my life experience as a parent and as a client, if you like, with assistance of my daughter, assisting my daughter, we, um, I could bring the perspective of uh, the client mm. to any investigation panel that I sit on um, investigating complaints again uh, that may be made against speech pathologists. Fabulous. Thank you so much. Hello, everybody. My name is Grant, and I've been on the Ethics Committee, I think, for... Um, I did three terms, then I had a short break. Now I'm back again, so probably about in 11, 12 years. Um, I decided to, I guess, uh, nominate because I'm a person who uh, stutters and I've got a you know a um, interest in that area and my research kind of aligns with uh, stuttering also from a um, IT view but I also sat on my own um, university's ethics committee for actually quite a while so I thought this is a very good segue into a different avenue of um, ethics. Fabulous thank you. Um, so my name is Suzanne Thiro and um, I'm an engineer, which is probably a bit different to <laughs> some of the other people who get involved in this board. 
My initial reason for joining the ethics committee was I'm actually very interested in ethics and I, I came at it from my own professional viewpoint because engineers also have to act ethically. But over time I came to realise that looking at how other professions and organisations deal with ethics might give me some little insight that might help me in those ethical dilemmas that were coming my way and so I've been involved also in um, University Biosafety Committee Ethics and then this one came up and I was like okay yep I'll try that one too and so that's me. <laughs> Thank you. That's good. And Jen, you are our newest community rep. Hi everyone, my name's Jen Morris and yeah, I am the, I'm the newbie on the block. <laughs> I think it's been a couple of months now, so much less experienced than my, my colleagues, but I'm looking forward to learning um, from them and the experiences that they've had. And I originally nominated uh, for this role because I've been interested in and an advocate for patient safety for about 12 years now, having survived several um, serious harm incidents in healthcare myself. And what I've learned in that time is that professional standards and ethics being a really big part of professional standards are, are probably our first line of defence against really significant harm in healthcare. So I studied ethics and uh, I've always been looking for opportunities to be part of you know, bringing high standards of ethics to, to professions and I've had a lot to do with allied health professions in the last few years. So um, when this came up, it just looked like a great opportunity. Yeah, awesome. Thank you. Um, so the next question that we have is, what is the purpose or role of the community representative in the ethics board process? Grant, I'll start with you, please. Oh, thank you. I think it's to provide a different lens um, other than the other board members to bring a, a community lens, but also our own individual lenses also to a IP. Um, Often we would have different views than those who are in the profession, and we um, also would be very focused on on a, on a consumer's um, rights and um, impacts. Fabulous. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. So, I guess I sort of see the community role being a little bit like. You can't hear a voice that's not at the table for that mm. sort of conversation and as a non-speech pathologist I don't have that perspective that the other two members the senior member and the elected member bring to the IP but and occasionally you know I can really put myself into that position of thinking as a parent myself you know how would I feel if it was my child or as a, a person who's um, got parents as well who you know have their own you know conditions how would I feel if they were exposed to that sort of behavior or so it's really about I suppose that personal or ability to connect as a person to the situation yeah <clears throat> offers a good reflection for everyone I think to be able to be thinking about that from that perspective all right Jen I think for me, I spend a lot of time uh, explaining what it is to be a consumer representative in general mm. um, to people when I meet them at parties or whatever. And I s sort of jokingly and non-jokingly tell people that it's it's my role to be kind of the professional pub test. <laughs> uh, you know, in that I think um, all of us live in inside 
cultures, right? Mm -hmm. In our professions, in our areas we live in, in whatever institutions, clubs we're involved in. And, and that creates a certain type of collective think, you know, that, that, that goes on naturally as human beings. And I think it's very important um, to have a perspective that comes from outside of that microculture. So I see part of my role as, as thinking beyond my own thoughts to what does the community out there in the world in general feel about this? You know, where are the community expectations? What direction is society going in terms of what we think is okay and what we think is not okay? And, and a lot of the time, of course, that's consistent with what um, the professional members uh, with me are, are thinking and feeling, but not always. And then it becomes uh, my job and that of my colleagues to kind of, you know, question that and say, you know, is this consistent with what um, the community would, would expect? From the profession um, and I think the other role is about making sure that all the significant stakeholders for lack of a better word in these events are represented in that room and uh, any speech pathologist who has had a complaint against them you know their, their general perspective is represented by those professionals and so the client um, if they're a complainant or the clients who you know are at risk need that voice as well and I feel like that's that's the voice that the community members can bring. All right. Well, the next one that we'd like to talk a little bit about is the Jen, you're fairly new to the board still, mm. but I know that you've had some other reflections generally, but I'm sure that there are complaints that have come through that have made you stop and think and reflect differently. And I wondered if there's any, um, any reflections that you had gained throughout this process that you'd be interested in sharing with the speech pathologists who listen. So some of the complaints that have made me stop and reflect is about my, our own journey. Mm. And it's probably, I want speech pathologists to know that parents are on a learning curve themselves. And it's probably the first interaction that they've had with a speech pathologist. So when, first of all, it's the understanding of um, your child's disorders or the need for speech pathology. But then home programs um, that may be set, the therapy sessions, it impacts on the family greatly. So it's it's something for you to consider when, when you are setting home programs. And now that the NDIS and billing um, has come into play, it's the understanding that travel, report writing, assessment mm -hmm. is all part of that assessing speech pathologist. Mm -hmm. And as parents or we don't understand, not necessarily everyone understands. So really the need for clear communication about um, all aspects of the child's therapy, the client's therapy, is so important that uh, you and the, this is where I always <laughs> get, get tongue-tied. Mm -hmm. So clear communication with your client is imperative. Um, mm, I think going on from what Donna said was what makes me reflect is the NDIS and how that can be very complex to actually navigate for a parent but also for the speeches and the um, other allied health, health um, professionals and that sometimes we see that some breaches are non-intentional breaches mm. where the speech is honestly trying to do the best they can under all the different circumstances and they may have made some accidental slips um, and I think you can also reflect on new um, graduate speeches um, who 
sometimes might um, have a complaint made and it's obvious to us sometimes that sometimes they need more training or possibly more of a supportive work in the place. I think that's an important reflection generally because it's something that a lot of people need to be thinking about. A lot of speech pathologists work very insularly, you know, they only work um, on their own and it's something that it's useful to be able to have those different touch points and talk to other people and have all those communications. That, that's cool. Looking like <laughs> Thanks, lights over there. Uh, I guess one of the things I've noticed uh, with complaints, not only with this profession, but in general, mm. in the work that I've done, I'm often reminded of, I'm going to misquote Albus Dumbledore here, but um, the general idea being that sometimes we have to choose between what is right and what is easy. Mm. Um, and I think a lot of the time, you know, complaints that end up in front of us, it's because people have faced a really, a really hard decision to do something like to say, I was wrong, I'm sorry, mm. or to say, actually, I don't know, or to, you know, speak up for the safety of a patient because there's a problem in a system or a, a risk, you know, posed by a, a colleague. And, and, and it's very hard for people to always, uh, to always do those difficult things. And so I think particularly around how we respond when we make errors, it's really hard mm. for us as humans. So a lot of the time when I see complaints, I have a lot of compassion for, you know, the the professional, in this case a speech pathologist, where they may not have responded as well to the early stages of things going wrong and might have been, um, you know, having trouble with not being defensive, having trouble with saying sorry, having trouble with um, having those difficult conversations and that is what often causes it to escalate to the to the extent that we see it. So, you know, these things are very hard as human beings and, mm. um, and I wouldn't pretend otherwise and I'm not sure how I would, you know, be in that situation. But I guess my reflection for, for all our, um, our speech pathologists out there is about how we respond in the early phases of things that aren't quite going to plan um, can have a really significant impact on everybody's experience. It's harder in the moment as a, as a speech pathologist to say, I'm sorry, I got that wrong, I'm mm. sorry if I offended you, etc. But it can avoid a lot of heartache for everybody and a lot of loss of trust for everybody later. Yeah. So I'd ask everyone to think about trust and about um, fallibility and about humility and the role that that can play in helping everybody through the inevitable ups and downs that come from working as human beings with each other. So um, some of the things that Jen was just talking about then reminded me of in the recent um, ethics edition of the JCP SLP that there was an article on ethical unease and you know as you were the editor for that I would love any thoughts and reflections that you have in relation to it. Yeah thanks Nadia. Yeah there's a, a beautiful um, description of a model uh, called Ethical Mindfulness, um, which was developed by Gulliman and Gillam, 2008. Um, and you can find a description of this model in the paper, which is entitled, But What Do They Want? Communication and Supported Decision-Making for People with Complex Communication Needs, Ethical Considerations for Speech and Language Pathologists. Um, so I'll just summarise it really briefly, but that the notion of ethical mindfulness um, it describes four steps. So the first step is to just notice when you have an uncomfortable feeling or you feel uneasy about something and to question, oh, um, why is this discomfort here? Is it related to an ethical issue? Um, and it's something that you might notice in the moment, but you don't necessarily need to think through in the moment. You can revisit mm -hmm. it maybe at a later, t a later time of the day 
or in supervision with someone. Um, the next step is to describe the ethical situation. So you really want to um, consider the information or the facts um, of what is happening there. The third step is being reflexive and aware of your role and the views and perspectives of others. So this is a really important step because it allows us to take a step back and consider all of the perspectives here. Um, it's very easy in our busy days to, to just think through, okay, this is what I need to do. These are the clinical rationales that I have. Um, and it's really important to make sure that we are considering everyone's perspective here and everyone's story or history or narrative or beliefs or what they're bringing to that situation as well. Um, and from there, you, um, the next step is about embracing courage to sometimes challenge the norm and to respond to the situation, which is exactly what Jen was describing there. Um, and yeah, reaching out if you need support with yes. taking, you know, using courage and making that next step. Thanks, Kelly. Um, all right. I've got one last question. <laughs> Let's do that. Um, so the last thing that I would like to, to, for us to all discuss today is just some of the things that you would like speech pathologists to know. So either that might be from being involved in the ethics board process or being a consumer of speech pathology or a consumer of allied health and health um, processes generally. So one of the things that I've seen in a number of cases is where a early career speech pathologist isn't really working in a place where they've got a lot of speech pathology guidance and I would like to encourage those people and indeed any early career speech pathologist to actively seek out a mentor who can help them develop not just as a professional but could help develop a career pathway yeah. and all those sorts of um, skills and goals and guidance really yeah, yeah just just don't wait until someone makes a complaint about you um but also i just think um, like being a professional myself in a different career mentoring is such an important thing for any young career professional but if you're working in a workplace where all of the other people there are not in the same profession as you there's a limit to what they can mentor you about. They can't give you that sort of technical mentoring that relates to your field. So you need to seek that out. Mm. And it's actually in your own interest. Good point. Yeah. It's really interesting as well, because that to me links back to what you were talking about with ethical unease, Kelly, and the idea that you know in those situations that things aren't necessarily as the right way that they could be. They could be, they could feel more comfortable and better. And it's the idea of rushing past that and just keeping on keeping on rather than going, hold on, what can I do to change that? I think anyway. And I, and I think as a speech pathologist in a situation like that, we will be under pressure from mm. other people that we are working with, whether that's we're working in a school, through the NDIS, um, in a hospital, whatever framework you're working in, you are going to feel pressures from those frameworks and it's having the courage there to say, hey, does that sit with me as a clinician and for me as my profession and and what responsibilities do I have here with my mm. association's code of ethics to uphold or to take a minute or to pause 
or to advocate for myself or advocate for my client. I think one of the things I've been reflecting on is, um, I think, about diversity mm. um, and, you know, that's obviously a conversation and a topic we think about and talk about a lot. But one of the emerging uh, diversity risks in, in this profession and, and in society in general around people with disability and people experiencing um, speech and language and eating and swallowing um, issues is the incredible divide in access that's opening up between people that have access to the NDIS and people who don't. Yeah. And, you know, I'm a very big supporter of the NDIS and, and, um, and its existence. However, we need to remember what happens to those that are left behind by it. And at the moment, um, there's some real market force challenges going on for people uh, who don't have that access in terms of, you know, um, business decisions that various um, professions and organisations make and funding models and fee levels and things that is creating another form of inequity that we didn't perhaps have to mm. quite the same extent previously. And so I'd encourage uh, all speech pathologists to, to think about the different components of diversity that are emerging as challenges now and how their practice in whatever context um, can help to make sure that people who aren't part of mainstream programs like TAC, like NDIS, like Work, work Cover, um, still have access as well because the needs are, are equally valid. Um, and to look around at your practice context and say, from a client perspective, who's not here? Hmm. And why aren't they here? And maybe it's because they don't have NDIS funding, but why is that? Is it because they come from you know, cultures and countries where such a thing doesn't exist so they don't even know to go looking for it? Is it about they've come from a country or culture or, or, or a society where speech pathology isn't a profession? So even the notion that such a thing exists to help them, you know, is something that we need to work on. Um, and so everyone in their practice context will have groups who are underserved mm. and the way you notice is to look around, you know, with a really, really honest eye and say who's not here and why. Um, so I'd encourage everyone to think about about equity from lots of different angles and make sure that everyone who needs services has access to them. That's great. I think just a couple of points, and I think going on to some earlier comments was, um, don't be shy of asking for help, especially from a spa. Like if you've got any concerns, any issues, any worries about how uh, you're working at work or how you're being managed or how you're being supported, always just get on the phone and actually call someone, even just for a quick chat. Um, I think a big one for me would be, Try to stay away from social media. Like, if you engage with social media <laughs> as a professional, you've got to be very, very careful because you can quickly destroy your um, reputation and possibly come up on some kind of, of um, a um, the breach if you're not careful. And we all fall, fall for the trap of posting and then responding and responding and arguing, and you don't want to get into, into any of that stuff. That's just good life advice, generally. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I was just reflecting on um, what Jen was just saying about equity and thinking about who's around the table. And I wanted to name drop the JCP SLP Special <laughs> Ethics Edition again um, um, and encourage readers to have a read of, um, or oh, sorry, encourage listeners to have a read of. Uh, Professor Laura Lundy's work, which has been summarised by um, Dr. Lindy McAllister, mm -hmm. um, and thinking about our children being represented mm -hmm. at that table and our children's voices being heard at that table as well. Um, and there's a lovely summary in there of how you can ensure that children's voices are being heard. 
seems like a lovely note to leave it on. Um, we'll make sure that the JCP SLP that we've referenced is linked in the show notes, um, as well as any contact details for Kelly and I at Speech Pathology Australia. Between the two of us, there is someone on the ethics team there every single day. So do reach out if you have any concerns. Thanks for listening and make sure you tune in the next time. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Please be sure to subscribe or follow the podcast and share it with your colleagues. You can also visit us at speechpathologyaustralia.org.au. Thanks for listening and bye for now.